Hi, this is Interplay, Conversations in Music, with a very special guest today. I'm Michael Shapiro, and say hello to Joanne Folletta. Hi, Joanne. Hi, Michael. Thank you for inviting me. Of course. You know, this is such a difficult time. Live music is not being done, except these odd concerts in Europe where people are seated far apart and there are very few people in the audience. Sometimes plants. I don't know if you saw that. I saw that. Wasn't that amazing? <laughs> that was great. <laughs> but I want to talk, having been through COVID pneumonia myself, I'd like to talk to you about your life because when I look at your schedule, Hawaii, Virginia, Buffalo, Ireland, the continent, South America, back to Buffalo. <laughs> I do notice that you go to Hawaii in the cold month. <laughs> well, if I'm lucky, if I'm lucky. But, you know, before before COVID, I was really, Michael, traveling every week. And as much as uh, I got used to it. I mean, and, and I loved so much being in those places and working with those orchestras. That um, you know, I I made made the travel work. You know, as you know, traveling is not easy, and but but so it feels very strange now to be in Buffalo since March twelfth. I mean, it's quite amazing to to have not been able to really travel. Of course, all the concerts in the summer have been canceled, and probably we'll see other cancellations. But it's made us you know sort of reinvent how we how we how we do our music, how we think about music. Certainly does, because we find, at least for as a composer and a sometimes performer, all my gigs are canceled through the year, pretty much. Yeah. Everyone. And uh, the economic effect is severe for freelancer. And I know for the musicians, because I talk to them. I have friends on Broadway. They're not playing mm -hmm. in the orchestras, in the Met, in the Philharmonic, and so forth. So what are you doing that's different other than not moving through airline terminals? Well, you know, being here in Buffalo, uh, as sort of quarantined in Buffalo, has, um, it's enabled me to focus on the Philharmonic and how we come out of this for the orchestra, because that is tantamount. I mean, that is of the, the paramount importance. So, so how do we stay in front of our public? I've been auditing... Um, concerts, uh, archival concerts, um, uh, editing them and uh, making sure that every week we're in front of the public, our public on the air. Um, we've been making, uh, you know, those crazy things where everyone plays from their, their living room and we try and put it together. We've done some of that. Um, there's a lot of keeping in touch with people. I've been looking more at repertoire that I never had the chance to look at, uh, which is good. I mean, doing a lot of, of research but it's it's still not the same as 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 you know making music in front of people and playing to an audience and that that we really miss. No, you really do miss. I'm curious about the repertoire question. One thing I love about your conducting, and I've told you this, is the way you phrase. It is innate. You have all the tools of communication, and I know, having conducted the Virginia Symphony, 
on your recommendation, how much they love you. You were, you were there 25 years, so you were about to be 25 years? Well, I'm, I'm just leaving them now after, I, well, it would be 29 years, yeah. So, but, uh, and it was, it was a, a it is a beautiful orchestra and beautiful experience. And um, you talked about phrasing. I think architecture is something you learn. Well, I shouldn't be telling this to a composer because, of course, it's all about architecture when you're writing. But uh, what our job is to, and to realize that architecture for you. You know, so we have to think about the architecture and thinking about architecture in the largest sense and then the individual architecture of the phrase is what enables us to give music momentum. And we owe that to the composer. Quite clearly. But there's something else that you have. I think the way you lyrically blend a phrase or turn it is totally yours. And there is a Folletta sound no matter what you are conducting. I can hear it, even if I don't know it's you conducting on a recording, because your personality gets into the music. It's so clear. And there's great clarity, too, with the turn of the phrase and the attack and the togetherness and the warmness or coldness if it's the piece calls for it. I'm curious about repertoire. I've heard from some of your, your colleagues, some very established names, that things are changing, some of them not great, where management is often thinking about box office and being very involved in selection of repertoire, even for some very uh, powerful names. It's not the Carrion days. So... How does this affect a conductor in Buffalo? You know, I think I'm very lucky in Buffalo. And I'll say that because I, I came to an orchestra with a history of risk-taking. When you go back to Lucas Foss's days, yeah. when Lucas was, this was the epicenter of the new music world. And Lucas, Lucas was, was a kind of person who sought out the, the most avant-garde works and played them for what was then a conservative audience. So he changed that audience. He changed that audience. And then that was followed by Michael Wilson Thomas, who also was a great, great lover of new American music. So I think that our audience here has, has developed, at least at that point, a kind of open-mindedness. And they trust us now. So, yes, they love the, 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 you know, the big favorites. But I think they enjoy even more if that big favorite is on a concert with a new piece, if the composer is with us and can talk to us, if it's a world premiere of something and we have the honor of doing it, I think they're very involved and they they trust us because they can't know all of these pieces, but they, they know if it's on our stage that we believe in it and we're going to play it to the best of our ability. That's quite clear. Even in the days when Morty Feldman was at the college and I knew Lucas and knew what he did there. It was wonderful stuff. And your history is goes back decades. But you don't you look you look fourteen, but it <laughs> we both do, right? Yes. But I've I've uh, maybe some music, but but I've been there now twenty years. And um at this point I think probably um when I look back I can really see that change has happened. You know, you can't do that in two or three years. You can't do that if you're only in the city for six weeks a year. 
you have to be invested in the sound of the orchestra, in the culture of the orchestra, in where they're going. And what's helped us too, Michael, and you'll appreciate this, is the fact that we record so much. We record from Loxos, as you do, and we record for our own label. And in recording, we're sort of documenting where we are and we're giving the musicians a certain way of listening to music. You know, when, when they know it's forever, it's going to be on that disc and it's going to be heard on radio. And, and uh, they, they analyze how they approach their, their art form. And that's really changed the orchestra. They are listening in a very profound way now because of all the recordings. I have a question about recording because I've recorded in... England as I, uh, and Wales, as I've told you, only chamber music here, the reason being union rates. Yeah. Do you have a different situation there than in other cities? Well, we do, and I was very lucky to inherit it. It seems that at, at some point, much prior to my time, uh, the Buffalo um, Philharmonic had, had put into its contract a great amount of electronic media guarantee EMG so that they were being paid all along for the possibility of making recordings. Now, for most of those years, they never took advantage of that because it, it was a poor city. It was a difficult time and they frankly couldn't afford the other costs of making a recording, not just the musicians, but the engineer, the editing, um, the production of the disc. So uh, it wasn't used. And we, we have that and a, when Noxus approached us, we knew we could do it with, with limited expense. I mean, we still have expense, but it's so much less because we have so much electronic media guarantees. So we're able to sort of document who we are now. I mean, some orchestras, you can only record 15 minutes a session, and that's it. And uh, yeah. in England, I don't well, have we, that yeah. Well, we do abide by those rules. We have to abide by those rules. And, and I think that the musicians, when they approach recording, um, and they know that they can only take, I think it's 20 minutes, 15 minutes from that hour, they're very focused on making sure it's, it's as perfect as it can be. It's tough, though. It is tough to record in the U.S. No, I understand. And it's something which I think limits our orchestras going forward and getting revenue. It, it would be something, I mean, Hollywood and everything else, instead of going to, to, to Europe, even using the London Symphony, you could use the Buffalo Philharmonic. Well, so, it's true. I, mean, I, wish, I wish we had we had that possibility of doing more, but... Uh, well, next contract Our orchestras are world. great. <laughs> yeah, and, and the American orchestras are so fantastic michael i'm sure you agree with me i mean yeah. first of all they can play anything they can play yeah. anything i mean and no matter how difficult it is and they're also very nimble i mean they can play a pop concert one weekend and turn right around and and work on a Mahler symphony on tuesday so they are very uh, intelligent very alert quick learners and uh, and always prepared that's quite true um now let's talk about your thoughts about the post-vaccine herd immunity world yeah. and music. I'm thinking about it. I will tell you what happened to me first. Yeah, please. When I was in Northern Westchester Hospital with 101, two fever, whatever it was, getting the, all this crazy antibiotic, I was thinking of two things. Get home to your family. And get the 
violin concerto for Tim Fain done, get it replayed and recorded, and write the opera that you just got rights for. I got the rights for Isaac Basheva Singer's The Slave. You know, he won this Nobel yeah. Prize, and yeah. it's the most amazing love story possible. I have a production team, and we're I have to find a librettist in the process now. So, but those things got me to say, I'm not dying. <laughs> I'm not going into the oxygen tent. Oh, my gosh. It was awesome. Well, you know, I actually saw you in Albany just a little bit before you got ill. And uh, I was I was devastated to hear that. But you're you're fine now. And, and you're, you've got your goals ahead of you. That's good. Well, yeah. What else is there? Well, and I, I hope we can be a part of the, the Tim Fain concerto goal because that's that we love Tim and uh, we love your music and that would be fun for us. I would love it. So hopefully we can all sit together. Yeah. So let me ask you a question. Where do you see you and where do you see music in general for you, me, and Tim and everybody else? And the audience, most importantly, going after this. Do we have well, a responsibility that's bigger? I think it's it's made me think that it is bigger, you know. And and we, you know, we have a wonderful audience that supports us in Buffalo. But I think, and and spending all this time concentrating on music, especially music I didn't know, new music. Um, I think that we have to live more in the twenty first century, Michael. I really believe that. And I've always I've always loved new music. But as you say, sometimes there is a certain amount of, of pressure put on conductors to do the most popular pieces. And you can understand that. I can understand that, that the audience loves to hear them, and they're more likely to buy a ticket if they know the piece. My um, Frankenstein. Yeah. Huge seller. Yeah. 50 they productions. Know, they're excited, and, they're, and they, they, know, uh, they know what it's going to be about. So, right. But I, I think that... <laughs> That we have to, we have to look to the, we have to live in the future. I mean, I think that, or live in the present and plan for the future, so that um, there are a lot of voices out there that should be heard, and um, I, that's made me reaffirm my belief in that. Now, I'm going to have to take the board and the management along with me, and and I think we can, but um, I think it's exciting, for instance, to live in a world where you can hear a piece by a Renaissance composer and, and a 21st century piece on the same program. And that sort of continuum of music, to me, continuum of music is very important. I love Renaissance music. Isn't it fantastic? Oh, I studied, yeah. And Monteverdi later. Yeah. And Shine and Shite and Schutz. <laughs> Schutz. <laughs> Schutz. You and I both studied, I think, with Carl Bamberger. Am I right? Well, I, I spent time at Manus with Carl Bamberger. My first couple of years there, um, I, I was privileged to be in his class. And uh, what an amazing man. Uh, you know, in, in Manus, we lived in a very European because most of our teachers were actually they were they were refugees and you know, I didn't probably realize that at the time but they were refugees from from the second world war who had come to New York and were these were amazing musicians like Carl Bamberger and were teaching us young American kids who knew nothing and um, 
what a beautiful man. And the way he talked about music. Do you remember, Michael, how you talk about music? You talk about Beethoven's sixth, not in terms of the techniques of, of, of uh, conducting, but I mean, as the elders would say, think of Vienna and the, the fields of Vienna and the wind rustling through those fields. And he brought it to life. I mean, saying that, I still, I still get a little shudder thinking of him saying that. It was like, how beautiful. I mean, it's just, or he, you know, spent time talking about how, how precious that Mozart would write, you know, take one moment of his life to put a little dot on that note. And, and we have to treasure that. I mean, his love of music was so intense. It's beautiful. And, you know, he also taught me phrasing, in which I, you know, it's that whole luft, yeah. the air, right. the voice, the breath. Yeah. He I would sing a lot. Do you remember? He would sing very often. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Now, let's talk about when you pr approach a score, the study of the score, which I find fascinating, especially for well, people like you. I mean, I, I think of architecture as well when I study it. You know, you look at, here's a score that you've never done, or it could be a score that you sort of know, like a, a Bruckner Four the first time I did it. You know the sound of it, and you've heard performances, but you're studying the score for the first time. And for me, it's important to see the big cathedral first, not reading from note one to the last page, to understand what's, what's the edifice, what's the building, what is the structure of it. And maybe some of that comes from Manus. You know, we, we studied Schenkerian analysis all the time. Mm -hmm. And to see the, the way it's put together in the biggest sense and then work inwards. So that's how I always approach it, seeing how it works for, uh, in, a, in a big structure and then get smaller and smaller and smaller until you're looking at details of actually an oboe line or why the recap is different than the, uh, the exposition, you know, in what way. Um, and... I love that. I love score study. I don't think you can be a conductor if you don't really love it. Well, you have to also, as a composer, study all the time. And two scores that I study recently, being also a, partially a vocal composer, is the Adagietto of Mahler 5 and the Adagio for strings. You could also say the Albanoni piece, is, famous piece, is the same. I believe as Sam Barber made clear, that if you cannot sing the phrase in the orchestral motion, you're doing it too slow. Yeah. So like the adagio for strings, often done glacially slow. Yeah. Where you listen to Toscanini's premiere recording when Sam was involved with him, the breath is there. Or the adagietto. Yeah, it moves. Like, you know, it could be that sometimes tra tradition, these pieces become kind of tradition bound and because someone very important does it slowly, it becomes the way you have to do it. But I think you're absolutely right. If you can't say the sentence or finish the phrase or sing the line, the music is not going to project forward. And that's what it's all about. Now, when you study, let's say, Mrs. Solemnus, which I'm studying now, just to study, listening and listening. Do you ever listen to how Toscanini conducted it in 1940 or with Yussi Björling and Zinga Milano? Yeah, yeah. Or you know, I, I do. 
did it? Well, I do. I, I, I listen to a lot of things, but I find that for me, it's better to study it first so that you have in your head, in your, in, in your, the ear inside, you have an idea of what you want or what you think or what the page is telling you without someone else in the way. Because essentially, I mean, and you, I hope you would agree with me, we have to be instructed by the composer. And, and he's not talking to us usually, uh, and it's a great pleasure if they're there, but, but um, that, that music has to come off the page and speak to you without an intermediary at first. Mm-hmm. Then when you feel, you feel confident enough to go to the next level, you can listen to Toscanini. You, you can listen to, to, well, you know, listen to someone who knew the composer well, like Eugene Ormandy and Rachmaninoff or Sibelius, you know, people who are standing there right next to the conductor saying, no, move that, please. Or, you know, I'd love to have a little more time. Or then, you know, okay, that's the composer's voice coming to us. You know, the Rachmaninoff recordings with Stokowski first and then with Eugene Ormandy, to me, are echt. They're perfect. I, I, I don't know how to change them. The tempo and the tempi are, are live, you know? Yes. They, well, you know, he also felt that that orchestra came to understand him, the Philadelphia Orchestra. They oh, yeah. they, they adored him. I mean, he was their conduct, their composer. And uh, they they loved him and he loved them. I forgot what score it was, but he insisted in one score that he dedicated the piece to every single member and every every name was on the front piece of the score. It's probably Is doesn't that the it anymore. Third symphony, it, maybe? It, I don't think it was the first symphony, but it third, might have been third, the third. Third. It might have been the third, yes. It might have been the third. So um every single person in that orchestra was someone he loved, you know. So <laughs> So maybe they 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 knew his voice, you know, without without even being told very much. And he recorded the vocalese with them, which is yes. gorgeous, and the third symphony. Mm-hmm. To conclude, a few more questions, well, one or two. What haven't you done? You've done a lot, so many years of conducting, work all around the world. But what would you still like to do that you haven't done? You know, I don't know if I would point to particular pieces because I have done so many pieces. I mean, some things I have never done, like a messian work. I'd love to do that, but but I, I don't have I don't have uh, big holes in which I say, oh, I never got to do this. I feel I feel very I feel like my career has given me the opportunity to do so much and to learn from orchestras in such a real way. So um, just to to now look look into the future and i think that that's a responsibility i'm feeling even more keenly now follow up though i know you've conducted eroica as an example beethoven three third symphony but i gotta believe i'm going to shift to the seven there's a reason beethoven's seventh symphony which Mm -hmm. has the probably the most perfect slow movement the variations that you can think about. Does the Joanne of now give it something different than the Joanne when you first started? Yes. I mean, I think everything that's happened to me in my life, my just growing up, or growing up with orchestras, learning from musicians, 
it's different. I mean, but I would say it, it, it's organically different. It's not all of a sudden I say, you know what? I have to take it twice as fast now. No, that's not me. But, but the idea that um, I, I'm free enough now at, to let the musicians around me inform the piece more. And I love that, to let them have a voice so that Buffalo Philharmonic's Beethoven Third, which, we, which we're in the process of, of releasing very soon, is different than the Virginia Symphony's Beethoven Third or Albany Symphony, if I did it there as a guest. Um, because yes, my idea of it is, is the same, but I want, to, I want it to be theirs. And so that's a big difference. I mean, in, in that sort of invitation to the musicians, offering them lots of, of ideas, but listening back to them at, at who they are. Let's just talk quickly about the phrasing and then we're gonna go in that movement of the Seventh Symphony, do you think you would approach um, uh, um, differently than you would have before with what has happened to us in life? Mm, I still think of it as something that moves, moves, and sees the light in the middle of it, sees the hope in the middle of it, and Maybe, maybe that speaks to me now about the situation we're in. Well, this has been a beautiful conversation where we've remembered and we've gone to the light and to the hope. And Thank I you adore so you. Much. And I think you're I the adore best. you too. <laughs> Thank you. And um, Thank you. this has been Interplay Conversation in Music with. Joanne Folletta. This is your host, Michael Shapiro.